Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my god, how could he do that? Are you on Donate? What? Charles Darwin. Well, Logan, we have finally made it. After a tumultuous six-plus months, a couple months of incredible NBA basketball in a bubble, which is a sentence I certainly did not expect to be saying from before this year, we are at the NBA Finals, and it is a fascinating matchup. So today what we're going to do is look at all of the matchup things, the storylines, the legacy questions that are present in our minds as we look ahead to this series and answer 10 of those questions. So let's start with just some big picture stuff as far as how these two teams are going to actually come out of this with the Larry O'Brien trophy. Let's start with the Lakers because I think it's a little more straightforward. What is their key formula to winning this series? Uh, This is my formula against the Nuggets and I'm sticking with it against the Heat. Uh, They've got to stay stout on uh, for the boards. Uh, They're number one in opponent rebounding. They only allow 37 boards a game. They're three and six uh, when their opponent grabs over 50 boards, and when limiting them to 35 or less, the Lakers are 15 and one overall this season. The Blazers got 50 boards on the Lakers in Game One, a loss. The Nuggets grabbed 44 um, when the Lakers put Rondo on Jokic in the post, another loss due to the discrepancy. Uh, I think the Lakers have to play bully ball on the inside with their big guys as they have through this entire postseason, get boards, but most importantly. Uh, as I referenced against the Nuggets, I think that you have to see some good movement and some good uh, court awareness, I guess, on the defensive end, as we saw against the Jokic-Murray pick-and-roll from Anthony Davis, from Dwight Howard, from JaVale McGee. Uh, It's going to be a tough task getting out and guarding against all these shooting wings that the Miami Heat have, but as long as Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee and AD can make those rotations and get out there, uh, we know what we're getting from the offensive side of the basketball from the Lakers. They're going to beat you inside with LeBron and AD, I think defensively is where the concerns have to lay because of the Heat, the Heat's prowess of shooting. Um, but the Heat, to me, are still the uh, much more supremely talented team. Yeah, I think that when you talk about that perimeter defense and just guarding against the three specifically, that to me is maybe the key to the Lakers in this series because they need LeBron and AD to continue to excel, to dictate pace of play, to be decisively the best players on the floor at all times which I assume they will be. AD's averaging 31 a game, LeBron's averaging 26, 10, and 9, and they are clearly the two best players left in these playoffs. I think another thing they need, and this to me is where the unknown variables start, they need their supporting cast to at the very least make open shots, which they have done lately. But at the same time, throughout much of the bubble and throughout much of the regular season, those guys failed to do that. So we've seen a hot streak from Rondo, we've seen a hot streak from KCP, Alex Caruso playing really well. Those guys need to continue to make those open shots that are created for them because I assume the Heat are going to do whatever they can to take the ball out of AD and LeBron's hands and make those guys beat you. But when we talk about defensively, they have to run the Heat off the three-point line consistently. And I'm specifically referring to Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero, the kind of off-ball weapons who consistently have actions drawn up for them when they're coming off screens and they have every intention to just shoot that ball the second they touch it. It's really tough to make those guys uncomfortable. Because Duncan Robinson at 6'7", with one of the quickest releases in basketball, also just a straight-up dead-eye, off-balance from all angles, no matter where he is, if it's beyond the three-point line, he's really difficult to affect. But if you anticipate, 
if you give constant effort getting over screens and you just make him work, you make him a little uncomfortable, maybe you take him, maybe you make him take a dribble in, he's not going to shoot an open mid-range jumper for the most part. 90% of his shots come from three. He's not going to know what to do as far as attacking a five-on-four because maybe you came flying in and took yourself out of the play a little bit, but you made him adjust to where he couldn't shoot that open three. He's not going to facilitate at a high level out of that advantageous situation. It's not as advantageous for him. Hero isn't quite in that same mold because he is willing to knock down those open mid-range jumpers. He has improved as a playmaker and an initiator for others, but still, he is at his most comfortable shooting those open threes. And if you take those away, you make these guys who are so comfortable just doing what they've done all season at a high level a little more uncomfortable because you take them out of that. So I think that when you point to the two keys, a lot of it comes with the guards and the supporting cast because... We need Rondo to effectively run the second unit, and I'll talk about that more. We need these other guys to hit open shots and play consistent high-level defense as far as effort as well because if you don't give full effort at all times, then these guys are going to get a lot of open shots, and they do not miss many open shots. Carson, are you concerned with the other shooters on this Lakers bench outside of... Because honestly, I think their most consistent shooter has been Rajon Rondo. And when that's the case, I, you certainly have your concerns. Who do you think steps up? Maybe not a, a Kyle Kuzma because we'll get into him later. Uh, who do you think steps up as the shot maker off this bench for the Lakers? I think it's a fascinating question. And this is part of the reason why I still have faith in the Lakers. I have no idea who, who it's going to be. But I do have an idea that someone is going to because that is what we have seen throughout this entire season. You look at this ragtag supporting cast where sometimes, and in fact for much of the regular season, Rondo looked terrible. He's been great lately. Danny Green has had some serious shooting struggles as of late. He's also the kind of guy we've seen make some incredibly high-level shots in defensive plays in final series before. Kyle Kuzma has not been exceptional in these playoffs. Also a guy who averaged 19 points a game last season. So... What's so fascinating about the Lakers supporting cast is they don't have that reliable third guy or fourth guy. It's anyone can be that on any given night. and Anyone can also be awful. But if they get more good than bad and if they just get enough out of that group and if someone steps up, then I think when you have LeBron and AD driving things, getting their 55 combined every single night, that should be enough. And I think the Lakers' wings um, off the bench are pretty underrated defensively. I think the Lakers have more talented defensive bench players than the Celtics, than the Bucs. Uh, Taylor Horton Tucker's a good defender. Rondo is always a good perimeter defender. I think outside of Quinn Cook, everybody is dependable off the bench to play good perimeter defense. Now, will that matter against dominant shooters like Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero? We'll find out. But uh, offensively, I think they lack. But defensively, I think the Lakers' bench is as strong as anybody. I agree. They have been fantastic lately in particular. One of the things that does stand out to me is Rondo is the kind of guy who has been playing great one-on-one -on -one defense and has also been taking some incredible gambles as a defensive playmaker, jumping passing lanes. He's been effective there. He's been feisty. His job is probably not going to be as glamorous in this series. It's not going to be as much of those digging into one-on-one -on -one matchups on the ball or making those plays on the ball. It's going to be chasing guys around screens a lot. And he does have a height disadvantage with Hero, but... If he gives full effort, you just got to try to affect these guys again and make them uncomfortable, and we'll see what role he plays in this series. And I know that I will get into that later because I think it's one of the most interesting dynamics of this matchup. Let's move over to the Heat, who obviously have the more difficult task ahead of them as far as winning this series because they don't have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. To you, what is their key formula to winning this thing? 
I feel like this has been cliche and has been their key to every series so far, but they've got to shoot the lights out. Um, the Lakers attempt five less threes than the Heat per game if they expose this discrepancy and make their shots. Uh, it'll it'll be the Heat series to lose. Um, and they also need to expose, as I mentioned earlier, the big man lineups. Dwight and JaVale combining for about 28 minutes a night, it's going to give you an advantage on the perimeter with Bam Adebayo setting all these screens up top and getting these bigger guys who... Dwight and JaVale never want to go out to the perimeter. They want to stay in the paint. They want to stay comfortable. And if that happens, if you give Toggler Hero, Jay Crowder, Duncan Robinson, if you give these guys a shed of light, they're going to make you pay. Um, round one, they shot uh, 39% against Indiana as a team. Against Milwaukee, they shot 37% from deep as a team. Um, and against Boston was actually their worst three-point shooting performance of the postseason. Only 32% to Boston's 34%. That can't happen in this series. If, they sh if the Lakers shoot better than the Heat, the Heat lose. You've got to get, like I said, you've got to get good performances out of Duncan Robinson, who has been 40% uh, from deep uh, so far in the postseason. Tyler Hero, 37.8%. And Jay Crowder, while he's been streaky, 34%. If these guys are on the ball, if they're making tough shots, if they are hitting their threes, uh, they can make it tough for the Lakers. I think that that is obviously the first offensive key for the Heat because that is their greatest weapon. It's that they have this versatility of shot makers who on any given day can beat you and that includes a guy like Duncan Robinson, who isn't going to have things drawn up for him late, isn't going to create off the dribble, but is very likely to give you 15 every single night just because he's going to hit five open threes because he's going to take 10 of them because they designed that for him within the offense. And I think that you touched on another key point. Going into the, la the Lakers' last series, I said that they could no longer play their two big-man lineups. They would be exploited, and that Jokic would pick them apart. He would find open shooters. They would be slow on rotations. It would be disadvantageous to them offensively because then you're giving Jokic a bailout to where you don't force him to either guard AD or a wing. And it ended up working out okay for them because Dwight was the kind of guy who they could put on Jokic consistently, would make life relatively hard on him, and would also, with just an aggressive mindset offensively, expose the lack of a rim protector and particularly a more tentative Jokic because he was always in foul trouble. So I ended up being wrong there. I do not see a world in which Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee can play big minutes in this series because the Heat not only play four guards slash wings, they play one of the most versatile centers in basketball in Bam Adebayo, who obviously they're going to want an AD the whole time. I just don't think that the two big man lineups are going to continue to work. Now, could you argue that maybe they'll try to abuse this team again by getting inside and attacking the fact that they are a relatively small team? I don't necessarily think that'll work because if you put Jay Crowder at the four, that's a really strong guy who's tough to move. If you put Iggy at the four, another really strong guy who's tough to move. Vertically, is Dwight superior? Yes, but I just don't think that they have that same thing that they can pick apart stylistically because... The Heat are going to hurt them more on the offensive end with those shooters. If you're not quick enough to get out on the perimeter, then you're going to hurt them by trying to attack inside. What do you think is the best defensive unit for the Lakers against the Heat? I think that's a good question. I would probably go... It's interesting because Rondo and Caruso, as of late, have been almost interchangeable. They've both been fantastic, but I would go with Caruso. He gives more consistent effort, and that is more essential to him being an effective player, and he knows that. So I would go Caruso... Danny Green, I think that there have been moments when Kuzma has been really good defensively in these playoffs. You could maybe argue KCP, he's had his moments, but if you're having to combat some really strong wind, wing talent, then I might put Kuzma out there and then LeBron and AD at the 4 and 5, obviously. And speaking of the defensive end, I do think that that is another serious key for the Heat in a number of ways because we talk about their best five defensively as far as really strong wings who will make LeBron work hard 
The Heat probably have better personnel than anyone in basketball because obviously Jimmy is that kind of dog. He's a quick competitor who can also hang tough with his strength. Jay Crowder, another guy who we've seen demonstrate pretty impressive foot speed, sticking with Kemba Walker consistently last series and also incredibly strong. Andre Godala, not quite what he used to be, but a strong cerebral defender. And so we'll see how the Heat address the LeBron AD pick and roll. They may have to double and blitz it, which is always scary when you're going up against LeBron because he's a top five passer of all time. But at the same time, other teams throughout these playoffs seem to have been too tentative to try something like that. And maybe the Heat's guys can stick better one-on-one with LeBron because, again, they do have great personnel there. But that's a tall task to ask of anyone. I think that at a certain point, if you're the Heat, you have to understand that if you are letting the Lakers be comfortable, you have no chance in this series. So even though LeBron generally is going to pick those kind of approaches apart, and if you double him, he's going to make you pay, he's going to make you pay by Caruso or Rondo or Kuzma, one of these guys hitting an open shot, and I would rather gamble on one of those guys beating you than LeBron beating you getting downhill time and time again. And at the same time, when we look at Anthony Davis, who is the other constant offensive weapon on this team, I think that this is an advantageous matchup for the Heat. Now, obviously, AD always has the edge, no matter who is defending him, but Bam is really one of a couple players in basketball who can handle AD one-on-one, and he may actually be the best equipped, because if you compare him to a guy like Gobert, Gobert is not capable of getting out to the perimeter to guard AD at the same level that Bam is. Like, that is no issue for Bam at all, and so... You challenge him as a lob threat where he has been utterly dynamic. You make those skilled shots harder that AD has just been killing smaller or less athletic defenders with where he's shooting 51% from mid-range, 37% from three. If you can always get out and and contest him at the perimeter, if you can make those fadeaways tough with constant length and effort, if you can try to take him away as a lob threat, then AD to me is a little more susceptible than LeBron. But I think he's still going to be great. Every indication that we've seen from him is that he's going to be great, but I do think that Bam is the kind of guy who can really make him work hard in this series. Do you think that that's a key matchup as well? Oh, I think it's... I I was actually going to talk about this in our next segment. I think it's one of the most important. Um, I think that AD is going to have to defend really well against the Bam out of bio pick and roll. Um, It's been the key for the Heat offense. Bam screaming guys at the perimeter, rolling to the rim, and what's going to be tough, what's been tough for every team in the playoffs so far is... AD deciding, do I go and do I roll with Bam at the hoop because I know that nobody else behind me is going to be able to stop it, or do I go out and stop these guys on the perimeter? It's the crux of the Heat offense. It is how they've beaten teams up to this point. I think it's the most important matchup in this finals. So let's segue then into our third question, which is, who is the most important player for each team in this series? And let's start with the Heat because we were just talking about it a little bit. I do think it's Bam. Do you agree with that or do you think it's somebody else? I think it's Jimmy Butler personally because I think in these tough moments in the fourth quarters, as you mentioned on our podcast last week, uh, Jimmy has been the most important player in fourth quarters and closing out games. As his other players, uh, obviously, Drogic 15 and 14 in in two games in the fourth quarter against the Pacers, Hero 17 in the fourth quarter of his 37-piece in game four against the Celtics, but Jimmy has been the most consistent guy that they turn to in these times, and I think it's going to be on him to close out games. The Heat are not trying to win the first three quarters. They're trying to keep it close against the Lakers and then sneak away the same way they did against Boston, the same way they did against Milwaukee. And that's why I think Jimmy is, I think Bam, play to play defensively and offensively, what he does for this team is probably a more important piece, uh, you know, play in, play out. But personally, I think Jimmy is going to be more important because 
he's the guy that they are going to ride late games to win them. Uh, why do you think Bam over Jimmy? Well, you made some very valid points, and I really thought about saying Jimmy because of who he is, not just as a closer, but also as a leader, obviously, as a high-level perimeter defender who's going to make guys work on that end. The reason that I ended up changing to Bam is because at this point, it feels like anyone can close. As you were touching on with Hero, Drogic was their leading scorer through two rounds of the playoffs, so they just need somebody to be that closer. It doesn't necessarily have to be him. And maybe we do see for the first time that Drogic, who's never been in a spot like this, tenses up a little bit. I don't really expect it. Maybe Tyler Hero, who's a rookie, feels the moment for the first time in a negative way. I don't see that, though. So I don't think that they necessarily need Jimmy to be that one closer time and time again, which is not traditional for a final team and goes against what I normally talk about, where you do need to have that elite shot maker. But I think the Heat have shown time and time again that they can sort of do it by committee, and that works. Whereas... What Bam does is not replicable. He has to make life hard on AD, who again has been playing the best offensive basketball of his life, probably the best two-way basketball of his life, period, throughout these playoffs. If they try to run a zone again, obviously Bam is pivotal because he is the guy who makes that all work with his versatility to where he can help at a high level, he can get out to the perimeter and make guys work there, to where there is no mismatch ever for a team that is playing against the Heat. And now you could argue that while that was the case for the Celtics, maybe that won't be the case for the Lakers because if they get AD on a smaller guy, then there is something that they can expose. But Bam is certainly not going to be the liability. There are stretches where he may need to step up to take LeBron because LeBron is not going to be stopped in this series. And we talk about the Heat stealing fourth quarters throughout these playoffs, and they have, but part of that has been the lack of a decisive closer on the other end. For the Bucks, obviously, they were turning to Chris Middleton, who did not always step up in those biggest moments. Jason Tatum was great throughout the playoffs, was not great in fourth quarters, averaged 5.6 a game on 30-something percent shooting. So they were able to take advantage of the lack of that on the other end, whereas that is not going to be the case. LeBron is going to be great in every fourth quarter, and it is very likely that AD is at that level alongside him. So I think that Bam is the kind of guy who needs to wreck things defensively, who obviously can't do that single-handedly, but he's got to be everywhere at once, and you talk about him as obviously being pivotal on the other end too, where he's a lob threat, where he's a secondary playmaker. We saw him even abusing mismatches off the dribble in the fourth quarter of game six, which was awesome to where he was just saying, Daniel Tice can't stop me downhill. I'm going to get to my spots and score, him, score on him every time. You can't expect him to do that against AD necessarily, but I think when you look at what Jimmy does as that great shot maker, as that playmaker, there are other guys who can fill that role in the biggest spots if they need to. No one can do what Bam does. He is the one guy who no one else on this roster can match his impact individually. And so that is why I've changed my mind a little bit for this series. Do you think with a guy like Goran Dragic, you mentioned uh, maybe his offensive production falls a little bit. I'm wondering stylistically, Dragic's game is so predicated on getting into the middle and putting up floaters. Do you think we see a, I guess, a downtick in his production because he's matched up with uh, two really good wings like AD and LeBron, just size-wise? It's going to be tougher for him to get those shots up. And if those shots are taken away, uh, what is his role in this offense? Here's the reason why I think that they can't really take that away. Because if AD is coming over and helping on that Drogic floater, that floater turns into a lob to Bam Adebayo and they will eat off of that all day. And as incredibly versatile as AD is, he can't be in two places at once and he can't affect a shot and a lob at the same time. So I think that Drogic's offense is sort of impossible to take away because it's just all built on that change of pace and that natural God-given shot-making ability and touch, and then obviously some playmaking instincts as well. So there may need to be an adjustment, 
But I think that the Lakers are going to be hyper aware of Bam as a lob threat at all times because even though they have much better personnel to combat him because they have Anthony Davis, they just watched him shred the Celtics for an entire series. And I think that they would be foolish to all of a sudden forget that. So let's move over to the Lakers. Who is the most important player for them in this series? I took Anthony Davis for much of what you just said uh, in the Bam Adebayo case. Um, LeBron, to me, is a constant. He's been here before. He's done it. He's averaging 26-10-9. He's got a great defensive rating. And uh, that defensive rating is even better than uh, Anthony Davis is so far in the playoffs. Uh, the Lakers are going to have to count on Davis getting out and ding up the heat shooters, like I mentioned. And uh, like I said, he's going to be stuck with uh, you know the tough task of guarding an 18.5-point-per-game score in Bam Adebayo, it, where Bam's game is really just get to the hoop, get to the hoop. Um, I think that AD can do it, as we saw in the pick-and-roll matchup with uh, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic. Uh, Davis just knows where to be on the floor. He's got great court awareness. He gets his hands up into each and every shot. I think that it's going to be tough because with two guys as dominant as LeBron and AD, it's like Anthony Davis is left on an island sometimes just by himself where he has got to make the decision. There's no one else to help him. Kyle Kuzma will get lost on defense sometimes, and it's him versus everybody. I think that with other defensive wings, if they run defensive lineups, it's not going to be as important for him to get out on the shooters if a guy like Rondo or if a guy like Caruso is ding up well. But uh, Anthony Davis is the matchup to watch because he's got the tough task of guarding Bam Adebayo and, uh, and these shooters. It's a very fair point. And in the traditional sense, I completely agree that AD is more important. But what you talk about with LeBron being a sure thing, AD may not quite be on that level, but I think that considering the production we've seen from him lately, he's almost there to where he's a sure thing. So I look at some of the guys who I think can really swing this series and can either greatly help the Lakers or hurt the Lakers when I'm talking about the most important player for them. And I'm going to go with the guy who I think is almost the definition of that in Rajon Rondo. Because if you look at the importance of his role running the second unit, he's going to play big minutes no matter what. Playing 24 minutes a game throughout these playoffs, averaging 9-4-7 and seven on 50% from the field, 45% from three. We've seen him consistently thrown into big spots to where he's closing defensively, He's making high-level plays on that end, and then when LeBron and AD are off the floor, he is facilitating, he is running the offense, he's also knocking down open shots when he gets them. This is also the same guy who not only has been on primarily losing teams and has often been a negative to his team's success over the past half-decade plus, in the regular season he was brutal, averaged God knows what, with negative 5.5 on-off splits, shooting 42% from the field, 33% from three, and so... I think he's going to play no matter what, because if you look at what Vogel has done consistently throughout this year, he's riding the Rondo minutes a little bit more right now because he is playing so well, but also no matter how poorly he's played, Vogel has always gone with him, and I don't know if that's a LeBron factor, but even when Caruso was the better player for, throughout most of this season, Caruso was the one who was scrapping to find minutes, whereas Rondo, no matter how much he was hurting the team, was still going to be out there. And he's been better in every conceivable way. More consistent defensive effort. Better finishing at the rim. Just looks a step quicker, a little bit more motivated. And again, when Rajon Rondo is shooting 45% from three, that's kind of special and it's pretty dangerous. But the question is, can he sustain that level of play? Can he continue to run that second unit effectively? Is he going to continue to establish himself as a threat, not just as a passer, but as a scorer? Can he make those open shots if maybe they face another zone where he's going to have to to expose that? Or if the Heat start doubling LeBron out of the pick and roll to where the only way to pick this defense apart is by getting it to other guys like Rondo, who's going to be left open, can he bring that constant defensive intensity if it's chasing guys around screens all day and it's not glamorous? 
Those to me are the key questions, and that's why I look at Rondo as the kind of guy who can really swing this series because he is sort of their secondary ball handler for much of this game alongside LeBron, and that's a big role for him. And if he's not sh shooting 45% from three, I'm not sure how well he fills it compared to what we've seen from him lately. And what a smart call by LeBron to bring Rondo in. You remember earlier this year, there was a time where we heard you know, talks of maybe signing Darren Collison to come in because of how little confidence they had in that guard spot. Um, Rondo has been the reason that the Lakers have been such a dominant team through the playoffs. He has been their third guy in... If you had told me that the Lakers' third guy was going to be Rondo, I would have told you they had no chance of getting to the finals. But uh, his shooting has really been the difference maker for this team down the stretch. Him making big shots. And <laughs> if you had told me Rondo was going to be a dependable shooter, I would have told you you were crazy. He's been horrible. But, yeah, I think this is a good pick on you, Carson. It's a little out of the box going off from AD and LeBron. But, yeah, Rondo's got to be that guy in this series. And that scares me. When you talk about obviously how Rondo has been a key reason why they've been this dominant. That's terrifying because I don't know if, he's if he can sustain it. And I think he's going to kind of need to. Like, yes, they have other role guys who can step up, but he is the one with, his, with the ball in his hands the most. And he is the one who the most is expected of at this point. Let's talk about another guy who has the potential, you would think, to be a pivotal swing player for the Lakers in this series, who I actually considered for the last question, and Kyle Kuzma, who hasn't been all that prominent, hasn't been closing games for them, what do you expect to see from him in this series? Absolutely nothing. Uh, maybe a new haircut from Rondo's brother, uh, if you're lucky. Uh, maybe a tattoo if they've got an artist down there. You know, I, I know Kuzma likes switching up his style. Uh, Kyle Kuzma gives you an inefficient 10 points a game and some really clueless defensive play. Uh, he's at his best when he's cutting to the bucket or and letting LeBron open up the floor for him. And I mean, I think he can be a valuable asset to this team as a scorer. We saw it in the Houston series. Uh, 14 points on a 7-for-10 clip in Game 3 and 17 points on a 5-for-9 clip in the closeout game against the Rockets. But he also showed his limitations last series against the Nuggets. 2-from-7 from deep in Game 4, 0-for-3 from deep in Game 2. And that's what they need off the bench. They need a guy who's going to come in and you've got Rondo as your ball handler and a little bit of a shooter. You need Kuzma to be a scorer for you. And yeah, he's got that takeover ability, but he's just not a good enough shot maker. I think that the flashes that we saw from Kuzma in his rookie season, I think we've overvalued him. Uh, just because of what we saw in that solo season with LeBron in a reduced role and not caring as much and letting Kuzma ball out. Um Kyle Kuzma is an extremely mediocre NBA player. Uh, so, Carson, I guess my final prediction for Kyle Kuzma in this series is uh, one haircut from Rondo's brother and uh, about 10 points a game. We're going to flip on this because Kuzma is a guy who hasn't been big for the Lakers as of late, playing the seventh most minutes per game on the team, less than Caruso and Rondo. But I think he has real potential to be a savior of theirs in a game or two because Rondo, and I just talked about how key he is, is not going to keep hitting 45% of his threes. KCP probably won't keep hitting 42% of his threes. Dwight, JaVale, those guys are potentially going to get played off the floor in this series. And if one of those other role players goes dry, they are going to need Kyle Kuzma offensively, particularly if the Heat play a zone. And if it resembles what we saw them pull out against the Celtics, where it's almost impossible to tack any defensive mismatches, and if you do so, you have to do it from the baseline, Kuz is the kind of guy who not only can make open shots, and yes, he's an inconsistent three-point shooter throughout his career. He had a serious hot streak earlier in the bubble, though, and he's also the kind of guy who, who never fears the moment. He can also attack those mismatches because he is a legitimate handle. At his size, he can shoot over people, whereas KCP, Caruso, Rondo, it's more difficult for them to exploit that. On the defensive end, too, 
He's holding opponents throughout these playoffs to 42% shooting, which is 4% below their averages. So he's giving you high-level production on both ends. He just hasn't necessarily meshed with what they're trying to accomplish in these individual series. But I think when we look at the matchup against the Heat, where they have so many versatile wings who Kuzma's length can help affect them defensively if he's giving that constant effort. And then on the other end, He's uniquely gifted as a shot maker to actually get 20 plus if they need it because the Heat are really good and the Lakers haven't needed a third player to get to that level consistently. Rondo's role is different, but you know, LeBron is going to have the ball in his hands more now than ever. And Kuzma is the kind of guy who can play off of that effectively, can get his own shot quickly, and can actually scare the Heat, whereas they're going to look at some other guys on this Lakers team shooting open shots and say, okay, and Kuzma might also kill them in a game or two because he has been inconsistent. That is a patented move of his, is that sometimes he's going to miss open shots and he's just going to have a down game. But he can also swing games and he can also win them games. And I think that there may be a game or two where we see them ride him out because he's playing great and he plays 35 plus minutes and gets them 20. You think with as good defensive wings as the Miami Heat have that Kuzma can still take over games with an Iggy on him, with a Jay Crowder on him? More than the other guys can. Because again, if you look at, and I don't know if we should assume that the Heat are going to use the exact same scheme that they did last series, but that zone specifically made it to where it was almost impossible to attack mismatches because you had such long athletes all over the floor. They were going to force you to the baseline if you were going to do it, and then Bam was there for help. And... Kuzma may not do it perfectly every time, but if I trust someone to make a, a mid-range jumper or to hit something from floater range or to hit an open three if they swing it to and in the corner, I just have a little more faith in him than everyone else on this roster when it comes to the supporting cast. So I think that even though he hasn't been crucial lately, we're going to see this be one of his biggest spots thus far, actually easily his biggest spot in his NBA career as a third-year player and potentially a defining moment because he scored 19 a game last year, but no one cared because it didn't mean anything. He had a fun rookie season, but it also didn't mean anything. Now we see if he can really step up to the big moment, and I personally am very much intrigued. Speaking of the Lakers role players and whoever their quote-unquote third guy is, this is a realm in which the Heat have an obvious advantage. They just have more depth. They have more consistent, reliable guys. So how many Heat players would you take before the Lakers' third guy if you're drafting for your own team from this series? Uh, I'm taking, I would say, four or five. Uh, Jimmy, Dragic, Adebayo, and Hero for sure, and maybe Duncan Robinson. Uh, I'm taking Jimmy, obviously, because of his defensive prowess and what he brings on that end. He's going to be the guy that's going to have to clamp up LeBron for the entirety of the game. And uh, all of these guys are putting up great numbers. Jimmy, 25-6. and six, Dragic, 24-4, and four, has been the offensive uh, firepower for the Heat in every single series. Adebayo, 18.5, 11-5. He's shown great playmaking and rebounding. And Hero, 16.5-5-4, I think that Hero and Robinson are commodities that I would take easily over guys like Rondo and Green just because of the shooting ability that they give you. You can't pass up that value. When you need a big shot, they're going to be there sitting in the wing waiting to hit it. Um, as for the Lakers and their third guy, I'd say that it's probably Rondo or Danny Green. Um, I don't care what you Kyle Kuzma fanboys have to say. Uh, as for Rondo, uh, playoff personal records, as you mentioned, 50% from the field, 44.8% from deep. Um, he's been one of the most valuable commodities for the Lakers, and while I don't think you can overstate his value as a player for the Lakers, I'm going to still take Goran Dragic or Adebayo or Hero over Rondo because Rondo's not washed. He's old. He just doesn't give me the offensive firepower that he maybe used to back in the day. Um, so yeah, give me Dragic, give me Jimmy, give me Adebayo, give me Hero, and yeah, give me consistent Duncan Robinson shooting instead of a question mark uh, for Rondo offensively. 
I think that Robinson is a no-brainer as the fifth guy because although he's been a little more up and down in these playoffs, he gave you 13 and a half a game in the regular season on 45% from three, and he is so exceptional in his role that it's almost inevitable that he's going to do it well. I border on six because I think that what we've seen from Jay Crowder lately, if he shoots 43% from three like he did versus the Bucks, then no doubt. If he shoots 25.5% from three like he did versus the Celtics, then I'm probably not going to take him. If he's at his career average of 34%, which he uh, is probably going to be because he's never been an exceptional outside shooter. We just saw a little bit of an incredible hot streak from him early in these playoffs. I think I lean six because you look at the defensive ability and versatility of that guy, the toughness, the ability to make a big play on that end at any time. I just trust it more. Even though he's not a steady shooter, when I look at Rondo, I could see him being a huge minus at any time. Same with Kuzma. Same with basically anyone else on this team. And Danny Green is obviously a more reliable shooter. I don't quite think his defensive value is as great as that of Crowder's right now because I feel like Crowder can guard more dominant players as far as big fours. And when you look at Danny Green, yes, he's good at sticking in front of certain people, but he's not exceptionally quick. And so I'm going to go six. I think it's tough for the Lakers players to replicate that all-around dependable value of a guy like Jay Crowder, where even if he's not knocking down shots, yes, he's not ideal to play, but he can also really impact the game defensively. Am I crazy for saying that there is that big of a gap between the Heat supporting cast and the Lakers supporting cast? No, I don't think you're crazy, Carson. I think it's a valid point. Jay Crowder has been, uh, he's gotten hot for the Heat so far in the playoffs. He's been a, uh, I wouldn't say dependable, only 34% from deep this year um, in the playoffs, but uh, uh, there's value in a guy that can just get hot and make you shots and make defensive stops. And you look at the Lakers roster with Danny Green's, <laughs> I guess, deficiencies from the, down uh, from uh, the three-point line. Danny Green has not been dependable. Jay Crowder has been more of a dependable guy in the playoffs, despite what Danny Green gives you defensively. Uh, six is a bit of a stretch just because I think I'm taking Rondo over Crowder. I think Rondo still brings defensive versatility despite being 6-1, and as you said, he brings a lot of playmaking to the table. I think his shooting is going to continue through this series, Carson. I don't know why you're quick to sell on Rondo. I think that, I mean, yes, historically Rondo has not been the best shooter, but the Lakers have needed him here in the playoffs, and he's shown out. I think it continues against the Heat. Well, I'm going to sell on the Rondo shooting just because I've seen Rondo play basketball for 13 years, and I've never <laughs> seen him shoot like this in my entire life. And so I'm just skeptical that that's going to continue. It's interesting with Danny Green because coming into the season, if you would have asked me who is going to be the Lakers' third best player, I probably would have said him. Maybe you could have debated Kuzma just because of his offensive value. I certainly wouldn't have said Rondo, especially after the regular season. And I think that that plays into another question, which we've already talked about, and it's a little bit of a subtopic for this question about the how many te- guys would you take from the Heat before the Lakers' third guy. Can we trust the Lakers' supporting cast to be good enough for the Lakers to hold on in this series? Yeah, I, I mean, you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, so depend is really a stretch. I don't think the Lakers really have to, and they haven't shown in the playoffs that they've needed to. Um, there are some serious concerns with this Heat team because they play st- such team basketball and can close gaps fast with their three-point shooting. You are going to need guys when LeBron and AD, they're not going to go cold, but they're going to be missing shots. You're going to need guys to, you know, break up stretches. Uh, I think that guy is going to have to be Deion Waiters or Alex Caruso or, as you said, Kyle Kuzma. And I hate having to say that this team is going to have to depend on Kuzma because of how streaky he is. Um, I think overall, offensively, 
yes, there's a concern, but I think there are enough guys here. Contavious Caldwell-Pope can break up a stretch. Um, and I, like I said, I trust Rondo to make shots. I think uh, defensively, the Lakers are going to be as stout as anybody. I don't think you have to worry about uh, Alex Caruso or Taylor Horton Tucker or Danny Green or Rondo. They've just been there. They've done this before. They are also smart, and uh, LeBron runs them defensively. LeBron points everybody on where to go and tells them what to do. I think the concern is offensively, as for shot makers, uh, no, I don't trust them, Carson. I do not trust these guys to make shots, but again, they don't have to. I think that, you know what, 10 points a night, you can trust guys to get you that uh, off the bench. Yeah, I mean, I like how your answer was sort of a yes-no thing, and mine is similar. I think individually... They, they just haven't proven themselves. And that's fair. And so I don't trust these guys individually. But as a group, for the most part, I do trust them because of what I've said, for the most part, someone has tended to step up and that has kept this team alive and dominant throughout the regular season and the playoffs. The pure shooting is always a question mark, but they shot 34%, 38%, and 34% from deep in three playoff series. That is good enough. I think obviously the Heat have to try to exploit this because they're two, the Lakers two guys at the top, you are not going to ruffle their feathers, you are not going to really affect them, and you have to at least say, okay, let's make these guys beat us, but do I think that as a collective unit they are enough? I do, and that's why I have believed in the Lakers through this entire season, because they have just enough from those supporting guys, even though individually they are unreliable. I got one more question for you, Carson. Um, <laughs> do you think it's going to matter, essentially, with guys like LeBron and AD at the top, can they? Can the Miami Heat even X out LeBron and AD to a point where these role guys matter in a series? Well, again, I think you try to take the ball out of their hands as much as you can, and if you're doubling LeBron out of the pick and roll and the guys around him are shooting 25% from three, hell yeah, that matters. If they're not just hitting open shots, that can absolutely kill them. I don't think it'll get that bad, but basketball is not played two-on-two. Two. If it were, then there would be literally no question about who was going to win this series. These guys do have to at least not hurt this team, and part of that is just making open shots. Let's talk about two of the most interesting members of this supporting cast for the Lakers. Two guys who have real legacies as far as the history of the game of basketball goes, who have had some strange, disappointing last few seasons, have been much maligned for some of their performances, and now have had these incredible resurgences, and that is both Rajon Rondo and Dwight Howard. So when you look at these finals, what potential do they have to affect both of these guys' legacies? Let's start with Rondo. Uh, for a guy like Rondo, I mean, I think it would change a lot of the perceptions uh, surrounding him since his time out of Boston. You know, he was a hero in Boston uh, for what he did with that team with KG and Paul Pierce and how great he was defensively and getting the ball around the floor and running that offense. Uh, I, but people wrote him off after Boston when he went to Sacramento, in Chicago, in New Orleans. And Rondo's never been watched. He's always been a great defensive guard who can get you 10 a night. Uh, he led the league in steals in 2010, assists twice in Boston, once in Sacramento. Um, and, you know, I mean, since Boston, he's never really fit anywhere. He's always had trouble with coaches or players. But a championship here means that he's a supporting piece on a, a finals-winning team. And uh, like we said earlier, Rondo has been one of the most important proponents of the Lakers getting here. Uh, I don't think it obviously changes his perception as a whole, but... Another title's a big deal for a guy who's given this much to the Lakers in the playoffs. Rondo's proven his value as a smart veteran defensive guard, and uh, I think it. I think it means. I don't think it means a lot on the whole of Rondo's career, but it means enough. It'll be a nice talking piece uh, at the end of his career. 
What I think is fascinating is he's playing almost as large of a role on this team as he was on that Celtics title team because I think he gets too much credit for his performance then. He was a 10-point-per-game scorer in his second year and was clearly the fourth-best player on that team. And if you look at where he ranks in the Lakers' hierarchy of guys, he might be higher up. Rondo has had a very confusing career. I think that this will help contribute to him being an overrated player all time in my mind. And he's been genuinely great throughout these playoffs. There is no counter to that. But as I mentioned, I do think he gets too much credit for that first title. People act like he was already a member of the Big Four, which he became. There were stretches in Boston's later years where he looked like their best player. You look at 2012, when they pushed the Heat 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals, he averaged 17-7-12 in those playoffs. He became this incredible two-way force. The guy who could assert himself as a scorer was a brilliant playmaker. But then, we had so many bad years. And people talk about playoff Rondo being good. It's a little bit overstated because he played 13 playoff games over seven years. And I see you shaking your head, Logan. And this is actually, to me, part of why I think Rondo will be overrated in people's minds. This season was his eighth straight with negative on-off splits, meaning his team is worse with him on the floor than off it. And that's not a small inconsistency. That is an established pattern. And I think it makes a lot of sense because Rondo was always going to get his numbers. He is what I call an assist hunter. He's the kind of guy who's going to pound the ball into the floor for 16 seconds and is going to find that assist, but it doesn't come within the flow of the offense. He's always been a liability as a scorer. I think that when you look at his legacy as a whole, the people will remember the good more than the bad, and they'll see those decent numbers from a lot of those years and think, you know, those were okay seasons. Maybe he wasn't nationally relevant, whereas I think that he was actually pretty bad for a lot of those years, but this is a resurgence. He deserves credit for this. I do think, though, when we look back at his career, a lot of the ugly years in the middle are going to sort of be forgotten. <laughs> Carson, I think there's some validity to this take. I scrolled down here on basketball reference. I'm looking for uh, the on-off splits. <laughs> do you want to hear some of the players that basketball reference has compared the, his career to? Oh, very much so. Kirk Heinrich, <laughs> <laughs> Jose Calderon, <laughs> Randy Smith. Shout out Randy Smith. <laughs> Vern Fleming. I mean, really, really NBA superstars here. That is, listen, the basketball reference comparisons aren't always great, but they are hilarious because as far as contributions to winning, like you look at Zach Levine's, I forget who they are, but they're hilarious. They're guys who like scored four a game and were in the NBA for five seasons. Let's pivot to Dwight here, who has had such a unique career. How can this affect his legacy? Uh, I think it's a cherry on top for Dwight, and I hope that, uh, a ring here with the Lakers uh, stops making him the punching bag and the you know the butt of all jokes. Dwight's already a Hall of Fame lock, a three-time Defensive Player of the Year. He finished uh, in top five MVP voting uh, in 08, 09, and 10. He led the league in blocks, um, and he was a runner-up in MVP voting in 2011. I think people forget about what a dominant center he was back in those days. And I, the consensus around Dwight was that he was going to be the next great. NBA center of all time. He was Hakeem Olajuwon. He was Shaq. He was he was going to be up there with the pantheon of great centers, and then that back injury took him out. Um, and Dwight's always had value on any team that he's played on, even if it was in L.A. and those years with Kobe where they were button heads. Um, if Dwight gets a ring, it'll be a nice send-off. It's, it's more comparable, I think, to like a Gary Payton getting a ring with the Miami Heat in 05-06. He hasn't done a whole lot on this team, but... A ring when people go to his basketball reference page. It'll mean a little bit. Oh, Dwight got himself a ring. It's something good for him. But it doesn't change the fact that Dwight underachieved after his injury. And 
wasn't the same dominant center that we were hoping that his career would pan out to be. Absolutely true. And I think the Payton comparison is great. I think that we always overrate championships for old guys' legacies when you look at Gary Payton. When you look at Jason Kidd, yes, he was a starter and uh, the primary facilitator on that team, but it was far from peak Jason Kidd. I do feel, though, like this could sort of be a moment of salvation for Dwight in that it's a little bigger than a cherry on top, even if he only plays 20 minutes a game in these playoffs or 15 minutes a game in these finals or whatever. Because how many guys in NBA history have, at 26 years old, been first-team All-NBA five straight times, a three-time Defensive Player of the Year, the best player on a finals team, and an MVP runner-up, and then, for the most part, without significant injuries. You're right about the back problems, but for the most part, he was healthy throughout his prime never an all-star past 28, play on four teams in four years, and you're seen as a negative at a certain point almost everywhere you go, refuse to adjust to the modern NBA, continue to demand to be a post-up player, and to then take that sacrifice where you're playing 18 minutes a game, averaging 7.3 and 5.5 and on 67% shooting in the playoffs, all on effort, being that guy who is willing to step up as an antagonist, for the opposing star big man and just at least try to get in his head. And maybe Dwight didn't do that because Jokic obviously was still fine, but he embraced that role. He wanted to be that scrappy dog, which for a guy who for so much of his career was profiled as the next Shaq or the next true superstar big man and then completely fell off of that cliff to see him come back and actually embrace that role in a winning situation, I think is a little bit heartwarming because obviously he's not even close to being a a huge contributor to this team, but he has been really good for them lately. And for a guy who has been so um, unwilling to adjust throughout most of his NBA career, to see him embrace this role has just been awesome. Who do you blame that more on, Carson? Do you blame that on the game progressing, or do you blame that on Dwight for not wanting to develop a shot? I blame it on Dwight for not wanting to become a destructive player out of the pick and roll because he still decided he wanted to be a post-up guy, and he didn't have a variety of post moves, not to mention that it's an inefficient play. So, unless you're a guy at the caliber of a Jokic or an Embiid, you're not going to get 10 post touches a game, and he continued to expect that. If we look at the guys in this series, Bam Adebayo obviously has some special offensive abilities, especially as a playmaker, but his scoring primarily is coming out of just being that dynamic lob threat. Dwight could and should have been the best version of that in basketball for at least a few more years, and he wasn't. And that's not how a majority of his offense is coming right now because they're not going to run a lot of LeBron, Dwight, pick and roll or Rondo, Dwight, pick and roll or whoever. But we still see him doing it all around the rim, off second chances, cleaning up the glass, and he's been really good at it. Let's move on to talk about another guy who in his own way is already crafting a legacy, Tyler Hero. Complete this for me. Tyler Hero was the most important playoff rookie since... I have two answers. Uh, my first is Jason Tatum, um, and that's in the sense of pure performance. Uh, Heroes had the most impressive playoffs as a rookie since Tatum. Uh, he put up 18.5, four boards, three assists his rookie year uh, with Boston, had three 20-pointers against Milwaukee, averaged 24 against Philly, and then had two 24-point games against LeBron in the East Finals. Um, I think that was Jay Tatum's coming out party, and I think this is similar in Hero. I think we're going to see a big step up next season from Hero because of this, because he's going to get more touches and more looks. And He's just confident. Um, Hero averaged 16.5 against Indy, 19 against Boston. He's absolutely fearless. He can get stupid hot for this Heat team when they need him. Uh, but clearly different roles than Jason Tatum in the fact that Tatum was depended on to come out as the offensive leader for that Celtic team. And individually, role-wise, I think Hero compares to a Richard Dumas. Uh, 
Dumas is a rookie on the 93 Western Conference champion Sun Squad that reached the finals against MJ's Bulls. He only put up 16-4-1 in the regular season, uh, had two 18-point games against the Lakers, and then a couple 20-pieces in the finals, and I think Dumas is the last role-player rookie that has genuinely helped the team offensively get to the finals, and the only guy I could find really through NBA history that could compare to Hero's role on this Heat team. First of all, I love a Richard Dumas shout-out. Fascinating NBA career, basically if I'm not mistaken, almost didn't play after that 92-93 season because of drug issues, but was really good and important to that team. When I look back at the historical comparisons to Hero, the first guy I thought I was going to say was Dwayne Wade, who averaged 18-4-6 as the Heat lost in the second round his rookie season. Then I realized, though, that I am a fool and that it is Jason Tatum because what Tatum did as a rookie is almost unprecedented in modern basketball when guys are coming in younger than ever and less polished and generally don't dictate like that. And he took LeBron a tight seven as their offensive engine. I also think that Donovan Mitchell from that same season is another historical exception because he averaged 24.4 a game for a team that won a playoff series. So Hero's been fantastic. He doesn't quite compare to either of those guys because he is not the number one offensive option, not even close to it, but he is one of the best role players as far as rookies go ever and what's so interesting is if you look throughout so many of these modern stars careers they are not in the playoffs as a rookie and that applies to LeBron and KD and it makes sense because you're generally drafted by a team that is pretty poorly off but Hero has been interesting because he has that kind of skill set where he's able to contribute immediately and he entered a really good situation immediately because he wasn't seen as a premier top-notch top-five level prospect when you look at his role through the, for this series, and we've touched on it already, but quickly, what is it and how does he help this Heat team come out on top? Um, he's got to take over games. And what I mean by that is when Jimmy gets locked up by Braun, when Bam is getting locked up by AD, they've got to depend on uh, Tyler Hero to take over. Just be the dog off. Be the... I don't mean take over the Goran Dragic role, really, but... You've got to run the offense. You've got to find your shot, and you've got to get it. I mean, we saw it against the Boston Celtics uh, dropping 37. Hero just has that at the drop of a hat. You don't teach that to guys. It is a, it's something that makes Hero special, that he can just take over a game and say, I am going to get a bucket, and there's nothing that you can do to stop me. I think Hero is a little bit slow, but just gets his shot off quick enough and doesn't hesitate when he has that look. That's what he's going to have to do. When he gets that chance to take a shot, take it, knock it down, and don't care about the misses. They are going to need to, they're going to depend on Hero, I think. I think we need to see a minimum of 17 to 20 out of Hero in this series for the Heat to be relevant and compete with a dominant Lakers squad like this. And I think that that's a really high bar to put on him, but at the same time, I think it's reasonable. And what a tremendous burden on a rookie who was the 13th pick of the draft. But that is the situation that they're in because the Heat need a little bit of magic, and he has been having those consistently remarkable performances. Carson, what out of the draft? Because uh, flex a little bit for him, Carson. Let him know you like Tiro more than anybody in that draft. What about it out of Kentucky? What made him special? What made him stand out? So when I was looking at this 2019 draft, I was so skeptical of many of these guys at the top's ability to truly develop into effective star level guys. You look at a guy like RJ Barrett, who had so many glaring deficiencies, and just throughout the top 10, it seemed like there were guys who had those issues. With Hero, I saw a guy who had truly special natural shot making, 
And for me, the floor of hero was always going to be a good NBA player. And in a draft like that, I was going to take that over a lot of other things, at least as far as my personal preferences go. And he has already begun to unlock a different ceiling than I expected because of, in particular, the playmaking. But I also saw a guy who had that special competitive edge where he was competing defensively, even though he didn't have overwhelming athleticism, had a negative wingspan. He just so clearly had that special winning mentality and that natural shot making. And then to go to a he organization where that has been fostered and developed to another level where he is really unlike any rookie I've ever seen in how much he embraces the big moments. Maybe Donovan Mitchell you could throw in there as well. But Donovan Mitchell just had more God-given ability. Also the 13th pick of the draft though, interestingly enough. Um, He's just special in that sense. In that, I didn't even anticipate to be at this level coming out of college because we never saw him in a moment with as high of stakes as we've already seen him in in the NBA. Well, and Carson, you talk about fostering his ability. I think the Heat really stand out because they've just made a good culture down there. They've made it, uh, they have got brought in veteran guys. Like, I don't think teams like the Knicks, they need to understand these older guys like Drogic, like, uh, like, uh, Udonis Haslam, just having them there to help these young guys along and teach them about the league. There's value in having these leaders there. And there's a reason why a Kendrick Nunn, a Duncan Robinson, a Tyler Hero, they just pop. It's because they've got good guys around them, like a Jimmy Butler. It, there are so many guys there to help them and teach them and work hard and instill this ethic into them. It's why they've been so successful and why we've seen this special run out of the heat as a whole. Yeah, I think that's obviously true. And the Heat culture is part of what has made Hero thrive as far as his role for this series. I think it's to continue to thrive as that open shot maker, as you said. And then again, if they run him off the three-point line consistently, which I think the Lakers are going to try to do, continue to knock down those mid-range jumpers and then make good decisions as a facilitator because you attack that five-on-four that you have if a guy comes flying at you and you make good decisions out of it. But the culture is what stands out. And let's get into that because there are a couple men driving that from the top. One of them, obviously, is Pat Riley. But the one who has now been with this organization for 12 years has posted consistently remarkable results is Eric Spolstra. Where in your mind, even without winning a title, just as we get into this finals, does he rank as an all-time coach? Uh, I think Spo's probably top 10 now. And I remember we shot our uh, top 10 NBA coaches of all time podcast last year. I did not have Spolstra on my list. I'd easily give (laughs) my number 10, Chuck Daly. Get out of there, Chuck. I'm giving him the boot. Spolstra's up there. Um... Four straight trips to the finals with LeBron. Uh, he won two titles. And I don't even think that's Spolster's most impressive coaching stretch. I think it's what we've seen the past five seasons from him. Uh, with poor teams like with Tyler Johnson and Goran Dragic and James Johnson. And these teams were horrible compared to the roster that we have now in Miami. They they were so impressive. And people realized that at the time what Spolster was doing by just getting these teams to 500, by getting these teams into the playoffs, it was just impressive in and of itself. And I think that there's value in that. And I think Spolster's legacy is going to be, it's going to be way bigger now with him taking a team like this. With It's just so out of the box compared to the dominant Golden State Warriors teams, the three-headed monster in Cleveland that we've seen. It's such a unique team. Spolster's legacy is going to live on forever because of this title run right here. And uh, I think for for me especially, uh, he has cemented himself as a top 10 coach of all time. What's so remarkable is he's 49 years old right now. He is probably a third of the way through his NBA coaching career if he sticks around as long as many of these all-time great guys do. And if he could do it all with the heat, that would just be remarkable. I think he's in my top seven. 
And first of all, I disagree with Chuck D- Daly being your number 10, and I'm sure we already discussed <laughs> that. I'd be glad to get back into it because that is way too low. <laughs> I think that Spolstra, who I had at number nine when we did that episode, is already top seven right now just by making these finals. I think he has the potential to move into the top five. You talk about his accomplishments with the LeBron, D. Wade, Chris Bosh, Big Three, which obviously is fantastic, but he did it with a super team. And I agree completely when you say that the more impressive stretch has been since then. Because if you take all the LeBron teams out of it, the Heat are still winning 53% of their games under Eric Spolstra. They have made the playoffs in 9 of 12 seasons, and they have never won less than 37 games. And in a modern NBA that is so defined by polarity, where you are either trying to be great or you are trying to suck, and most teams never get to that point where they're great, so they just suck, the Heat have never been there. And I do think that part of that is an organizational mindset, but I also think it's Spolstra's ability to maximize talent. Look at that team that in 16-17, I want to say, when they were 10-31 and 31 halfway through the season, and then they finished the year on a 31-10 and 10 tear, and... It was Dion Waiters and the boys leading them to the top of the mountain. That's just unreal. I don't think there's another coach in basketball who can do that. And if you look at not just on the court, not just as a leader, not just as a culture setter, the pure player development is unbelievable. Just look at literally this year's roster. Duncan Robinson, seeing a guy who was not recruited out of high school, played at Williams for a year, was a solid college player but never the focal point of his offense. Seeing that they could weaponize him like they have, Unreal. Bam Adebayo, a guy who was essentially a blank canvas who they could sort of shape to their mold, just a dynamic role man and rim protector, great athlete, to turn him into this level of a playmaker and a defensive savant, of course part of the credit goes to the player, but it also has to go to Spolster and the player development. Kendrick Nunn, an undrafted rookie, came in and averaged 16 a game for this year, was fantastic offensively and also giving effort consistently defensively for much of this season. Tyler Hero, as a rookie, that is special all-time stuff. And if you think it's a coincidence that these guys continue to pop up with the Heat, then you are not aware of how basketball works because for much of the 2000s, it was the Spurs. Right now, I think it's the Raptors and the Heat, these guys who have that culture that is driven by, first of all, a brilliant person in the front office, Pat Riley for the Heat, Masai Ujiri for the Raptors, and then, more than anything else, that coach who is incredible at seeing potential within guys and maximizing and also having that universal identity and those core values. So I just think that when you look throughout the history of the sport, there are a few guys who have that balance of that culture setting ability, that connection with players, because Spolstra was a guy who came in and was only a decade older than LeBron or whatever, maybe a little bit more than that, and was able to understand those guys and relate to them. And then is also brilliantly, is brilliant schematically. There are just few guys in basketball history who can say that. Let's talk about, speaking of basketball history, where this Heat team ranks among the strangest finals teams ever, because they're certainly up there. When you look throughout the history of the game, as we love to do here on Nerd Sesh, who else compares in that respect? Nobody. I think the Miami Heat are the strangest finals team that we've ever seen, um, considering that they've got uh, six double-digit scorers in the playoffs with four guys making two and a half or more threes a game. I mean... Obviously, we're not going to have anybody that can match those numbers because of how the game has changed. No one in, you know, 2004 was shooting two and a half threes or making two and a half threes a night with this many guys. But no one else in the history who has made an NBA Finals, no one has had scoring this spread out. Um, 
Uh, Goran Dragic at uh, over 20, Butler at over 20, Adebayo at 18.5, Hero 16.5, and then Duncan Robinson and Jay Crowder over 11. It's crazy. Uh, I mentioned the three-point shooting. Robinson at 2.9 makes Crowder 2.8, Dragic and Hero 2.5. Uh, if I'm going to give them a comp, I think the easy one is the like 03 to 05 Pistons. They had four guys in double-digit scoring, and then three guys at 9.5, Corliss Williamson, Ben Wallace, Memo Okor. Uh, but... I mean, for the Pistons, they were such a unique team because of their hard-nosed number two-ranked defense through those years. The Heat don't have that. That's why they're so unique because, Carson, we said it on air. They are such a mediocre team. They don't do anything exceptionally well. This team will probably be out in the first round. That is what sold them because they didn't do anything that said, yes, this team can do it. That's why they're so unique. Yeah, that's, that's what I think of the Heat. I think they are the most unique team that we have ever seen make an NBA Finals. I love the boldness. I went deep throughout, and I looked at basically every finals team ever, and there was a number that I came up with maybe had inferior rosters or records where you could point at them and say, okay, that's even stranger. You start with 07 Cavs, whose second leading scorer was Larry Hughes. They only won 50 games, but they did have that supernova talent driving it, and we've seen it throughout history where if you look at the 86 Rockets, sometimes there are these teams that aren't great overall, but they have that supernova talent driving it, and that's enough. The Cavs were exceptional in that it was literally only one guy, whereas Akeem had Samson, Young, Shaq had Penny, but we've seen that model a little bit before. You can look at the 04 Pistons, who were a relatively new thrown-together team with Billups, Rip Hamilton, Tayshaun Prince all in their second year together. Sheed was brand new. Of course, there was also a terrible era in the East, and they were that unbelievable defensive team, and that is a thing where... You look at the 0203 Nets, strange teams. The 02 Nets didn't have a 15 point per game score. Kenyon Martin and Keith Van Horn were their two leading guys, but even they still had that clear superstar, a borderline top five guy. And again, it, the East was just abysmal back in those days. You look at the 01 Sixers, maybe a one seed with 56 wins. I think that one team that's a little bit tough to argue against is the 99 Knicks because they were an eight seed and they were 27 and 23. They lost Patrick Ewing throughout the playoffs and Latrell Sprewell became the guy for them and they somehow still made the finals. And in some ways that season mirrors this one because you have these exceptional historic circumstances where there was a long lockout and they only played a 50 game season. This year is different. But it's the bubble, right? So it's still those unique circumstances where we see these unexpected teams thrive a little bit. And then I go back, maybe the 81 Rockets, but again, they were completely carried by Moses, who is that kind of superstar who can drive that success. And then if you go back to the 70s, there were a few, but the 70s were such a strange era of basketball and there was so much parity that it's tough to single any one team out. Maybe the 76 Suns would definitely be up there because they weren't all that great. The 75 Warriors were just so carried by Barry. But again, that young supernova talent is driving it all. So long story short, the Heat are doing this in an era where we have seen the same formulas lead teams to success time and time again. The super, the super team identities, the dominant shot makers at the top, and they are not doing that, which is why when I look to some of these other teams historically, by and large, they were taking advantage of a weak conference, and it was an era of basketball that was filled with more parity. The 2010s have been far from that. It has been defined by the same teams getting back time and time again, and the Heat are breaking that mold, and they are doing it in a very different way strategically as well. So when we look at the legacy of this team, can they be back? Because this is a formula that we haven't seen anyone else follow. But is it possible that they can sustain it and replicate this year? Uh, yeah, I think they can. Um, they they move the ball well uh, like a, 
honestly like a Warriors team, Carson. They move the ball just as well as any other offense in basketball. And more importantly, their team is young and under contract. Hero's only 20 on his rookie deal. Uh, I, he's got superstar written all over him. Adebayo's on his rookie deal, only 23. He's about to get a bag, though. Um, Butler is signed through 2022 with a player option. Um, my one concern, I think, for this offense and this team moving forward is the aging Goran Dragic. He is a free agent this offseason, although the Heat have bird rights on him. Uh, I'm just concerned with him getting up there in age if he's going to be able to sustain his his quickness and drive. But as you say, he's got that natural shot-making ability that will regardless make him a weapon for whatever team he's on. Um yeah, I think they can go back. I don't think we we've seen. They don't need any of these top draft picks despite, you know, no matter how good they've been. They can bring in whoever and they recognize talent. They can bring in young guys that are undrafted and turn them into weapons, much as how you mentioned the Raptors and this Heat squad have done historically. Uh, I think their window is the next two seasons. I think after that, they're not really going, they're going to have to, you know, retool, rebuild with how fast the NBA moves. But yeah, there is a world in which in the next two seasons, I see this Heat team getting back to the finals. Which I think is remarkable because who would have expected that when they brought in this group to begin this season when it was Jimmy who was coming off of a disappointing campaign in many ways with the Sixers. Bam was an unknown commodity at that point. Drogic certainly no one expected to go out and score 20 plus a game in the playoffs. Tyler Hero was a late lottery pick. So many guys who were pivotal to this team. Jay Crowder and Andre Godala were not on the roster. I think it's possible. I don't think it's likely because I still do lean on talent. And I think that if you look at the East going forward, it's going to go through Boston and Brooklyn. And I think that the Heat may have been able to capitalize a little bit on an inexperienced Boston team this year. Yes, they've been in these spots before, but 22-year-old Jason Tatum didn't look quite ready for the moment in the biggest spots. And I think that after this year, that's going to be tougher to say because this is the kind of career-changing, potentially learning experience for him. And then Brooklyn, when you have Katie and Kyrie driving things at the top, and at least a decent supporting cast, that's a really tough mold to beat. At the same time, the Heat are easily the most well-rounded team out of that bunch. They have unmatched chemistry and synergy and a clear identity. Hero and Bam, as you mentioned, still improving. Jimmy and Drogic still basically in their prime. And that coaching from Spolstra, that culture that they have instilled organizationally and within these individual players, does not go away. It's what made this team special, and maybe it's what will help them continue breaking those historical molds that I tend to rely on, and maybe they will be back. I don't think it's all that likely, but I do think it's possible. Uh, Carson, let me ask uh, one question uh, to wrap this uh, this segment up. Uh, what do you think, if it's not the Heat, who is the team to beat in the East moving forward these next, let's say, three to five seasons? Well, I think it's either Boston or Brooklyn because Boston has the potential to have a true top five MVP level guy in Jason Tatum who can get you 30 on one end and facilitate now, which is even more dangerous, and then also lock up on the other. They have their potential long-term Robin and Jalen, who was great in the big moments in these playoffs. They have Kemba, who will at least be in his prime for a couple more years. They have smart driving things defensively. They have Brad Stevens. So I just think that they have more room to improve. Even though the Heat's guys are young, I see a higher ceiling with the Celtics. And then again, as I mentioned, when KD comes back, we don't know exactly what he's going to look like, but two shot makers of that caliber is very dangerous. Do you see anyone else coming into that conversation? Maybe the Sixers? Um, no, the Sixers. I honestly, I don't think the Sixers can win a, I don't think they can get to the Eastern conference finals until they move off of Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid. I don't think the pairing works or until Ben Simmons develops a jumper. I think I, I'm still, Okay, kill me. I still like the Raptors. You know, I'm going to stay on the Raptors train for forever. Fair enough. Uh, uh, last thing on the Celtics. 
what has it been, Carson? Because it feels like every single season, the Celtics are on the brink of this championship, on the brink of greatness. What is this wall? What do they keep hitting? Youth, I think, and the fact that they haven't had that decisive, unreal shot maker in the biggest moments. And I think Jason Tatum will be that. And when he gets there, I think they will be next to impossible for another team in the East to match. So now, Logan, let's move on to our final question of the day. Where would this title rank among LeBron's all-time achievements? Because we have to ask, we've done all the other stuff. We got to talk about the legacy for the guy who has the most at stake in this series. Uh, Personally, I think this ranks as one of the most impressive for LeBron, considering the talent around him. Yes, he has Anthony Davis to rely on fully, but from a role-player perspective, this is a weak LeBron team. Uh, In Miami, he had Mike Miller, Ray Allen. Uh, In Cleveland, he had obviously Kyrie as... Cleveland showed the value of a having that shot maker off the ball for LeBron to depend on, and he had Kevin Love. Now, the benches on those teams were also pretty horrific, but I think this is the worst one he's had. Um, when you've got to depend on Kyle Kuzma, on Rondo, on Alex Caruso, yeah, this team's pretty bad. I think I think the LeBron haters are going to miss this title if he wins because of the talent on uh, this Heat roster and because this is a bubble Oh, there weren't any fans. Oh, there's going to be pushback because people hate LeBron. But uh, I think bigger, contextually, this gives him his fourth ring. This is a big deal. This gets him to. This gets him one more closer to Jordan, which is the ultimate goal, I think, for LeBron to get up to six. Because Jordan fans are not going to listen to the LeBron argument until he gets up to six total. And fourth puts him on level with Shaq. I think this fourth ring puts him definitively as that number two above a guy like Kareem. Uh, so yes, I think this is a huge accomplishment. I would personally put this third on his all-time championships, uh, one behind the three-in-one comeback and behind the 2013 championship. So not as impressive as his other two title wins, but uh, historically and contextually with what he's already done, this is a big deal getting him his fourth ring and getting him one more step close to Jordan. I think this would be his second most impressive accomplishment of all time. And there's a bunch of cute stuff you can look at like averaging 34-9-9 to get that 2018 team, which was an abysmal roster to the finals, or getting the 07 roster, another terrible one to the finals. But the final objective of every season is to win the title. And so I think that inherently those are more impressive than everything else. The 3-1 comeback, where he averages 30-11-9, two and a half steals, 2.3 blocks a game in that series, that's honestly just about impossible to match. It's one of the most remarkable things ever. Although I do think... It's still overstated because so many things had to go right that were completely out of his control for it to happen. A little bit like the 2013 series, except I think it's more so with um, the 2016 finals because the Warriors were just clearly the better team. And let's get into it. The Draymond suspension, the Bogut injury, the Steph being banged up, Harrison Barnes having the literal worst series of all time. Enough is enough, though. As far as this accomplishment goes, to at 35 years old, not just win a title, but to clearly be the best player on in the planet in doing so, he would be the only guy outside of Jordan to do that, in my eyes, to average 27-10-9 right now throughout these playoffs, and at this point to convincingly get through the competition, it does not matter who you go through. It doesn't matter that he's not going to face that dynastic opponent because in so many titles throughout NBA history, people haven't had to do that. He's had to play some really good teams, though, some teams that have been dangerous And obviously the Denver Nuggets literally beat the Clippers. The Heat got through the Bucs and the Celtics to get here. These are quality opponents and they are comparable to finals teams throughout NBA history. Now, we just talked about how strange the Heat are, but they are at the very least a really good team. And so I think that at this point in his career, when he hasn't done this in 
four years now, which is crazy. It feels like it's been a lot longer than that, but it's only been that long. I think that we're talking about one of the most incredible things that he has ever accomplished. And part of that is you talk about the supporting cast. It's not just the guys who are around him in the more traditional role player sense. It's that they don't have that third reliable star level guy because obviously the Heat had that in Chris Bosh. The Cavs had that in Kevin Love. And those guys weren't exceptional, but they were certainly better than Rondo or Kuzma or whoever's going to step up as the third guy in this series. And AD is better to me than Dwayne Wade was in his time with LeBron and certainly better than Kyrie. But that doesn't necessarily make up for the fact that it's two guys carrying the load. So that's going to do it for us here today. We are obviously incredibly excited to get underway with these finals and hope that this sort of sets the stage for what we're going to see stylistically and as far as the historical context of this series. We got a big week ahead. We're coming with our first live show on Blaze Radio since programming began on Saturday, which we will also release as a podcast. Going to be talking NFL. We're doing a trivia time on Saturday, so it's going to be a full week. But right now, let's focus on basketball because it is incredibly lucky that we are here and we've got some great stuff ahead of us. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerds.